John is a teenager. John is a bit awkward. Uh, John is not in the cool crowd. John walks down his high school hallway, and a group of jocks kick him and laugh. And so let's say that you're John's classmate. Uh, you turn from your locker at the commotion, and there it is right there on John's back, a kick-me sign. Really? Uh, you feel sad for John. Uh, you're mad at the juvenile jocks. You catch up to John and remove the kick-me sign from his back and show it to him, which you quickly realize comes at a cost. People stare at you and John. No one applauds. Now you might be the target. As you show John the kick-me sign, something surprising happens. John gets irritated with you. He was the brunt of someone else's cruel joke, yeah? But you are showing that to him. You're showing him the source of his grief. John snatches the sign from your hand with anger as if you did something wrong. You're shocked. See, something inside John wants to be accepted by the pranksters. So you become John's target. These are real-life tensions. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm at a wedding or at a nice dinner or something and I notice something stuck in someone's teeth... Uh, like broccoli or something like that, I have a hard time telling them. I'll just be honest with you. So if you're ever with me eating, just know I'm, I might not say it. Uh, I'm probably not a good guy to have at the table. I'd want you to tell me, but, uh, but somehow I feel bad to let people know. Uh, but then they just keep on going with this obvious tree stuck in their teeth, and, and they're like, <laughs> well, right there it is. I mean, for the world to see, the whole table just relishing in this tree. Relish. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Uh, every smile, every laugh, it just frames this big green thing in their teeth. I get intimidated by that, all right? And maybe I should just carry a little mirror. Just hold it up, and then maybe they'd figure it out on their own, and I wouldn't have to say anything, but that's awkward as well. So here's my point. Confrontation is not easy. Uh, Even on simple and innocent things, it's not easy. But confrontation can be a great expression of love and kindness. It's tempting and easy to say nothing when we know that something needs to be said. It's hard to speak up in trivial matters, let alone when someone is caught in sin, when people believe unsound doctrine, when people compromise the gospel. It's tough to preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel when we know that by doing so requires us to draw attention to someone's fault or their pain. We know it's right, we know it's loving. We know it's necessary. We know it's really tough to do. But is it truly loving to sit by and watch brothers and sisters in Christ say and do things not in step with the truth of the gospel? We expect it from unbelievers. Sin hurts the church. It has a ripple effect. So true love and confrontation go together. What is true love? Our culture has a warped view of love, so it's easy to get true love wrong. There's a lot to say about true love, but here's a simple definition for you. True love is a spirit-produced desire for and working towards the highest good of another for the glory of God 
even when it demands great personal sacrifice. Let me explain. True love is is unnatural for us. It comes from God alone who works it in believers. True love is a desire that God puts in your heart, which is then expressed in loving uh, conduct. True love willingly and joyfully acts towards the highest good of another. So true love is not self-seeking. A person's highest good is defined by God in his word. The law and gospel explain our highest good. So our highest good is not what we say is good, but what God says is good. So true love seeks another's highest good as God defines good in Scripture. Therefore, true love must coincide with Scripture for God's glory alone. True love desires and acts in a way that promotes God's glory, truth, and grace. And true love most often comes at great personal sacrifice. Our culture's love is self-seeking. True love is self-sacrificing. The quintessence, rather, the quintessence of true love is the person and work of Christ. Jesus Christ. Nothing demonstrates true love more than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus confronted according to God's truth, God's word. True love is not applauding a person as they destroy themselves by doing whatever they want to do. True love sometimes confronts in order to bring someone into conformity with what God wants them to say and do. Romans 13 verse 10 puts it like this. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Heidelberg answer 107 says this, God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him to protect him from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. But keep in mind, God determines what is harmful and God determines what is good. Ignoring God's law is harmful Obeying God's law is good. If you plan to actually love others, you must plan on conflict. Because true love seeks to protect from sin and promote holiness, and that's not always desired or well-received. Now, my, my son Andrew would love to run in the street. Uh, he's bolted for the road before. That's scary to see a little two-year-old bolt for the road. Is it true love for me to support Andrew in his street running? Ring, ring, hello, child services. Daddy's going to jail. Love compels me to go and to grab Andrew as he kicks and screams and hits me. I don't want him to die. I want him to live. Why would Andrew kick and scream then? Because at that moment, he wants me to love him according to his immediate desires and not according to God's desires and his greatest good. True love does not act according to someone's immediate desires, 
but according to God's desires and their greatest good. What is confrontation? I'm talking about a specific kind of confrontation inside the church. This is confrontation that only true Christians can do with each other. This kind of confrontation is done because the gospel is priority. So here's what I mean by confrontation. Confrontation is a spirit-led, loving, and firm challenge and correction of an ungodly thought, statement, or action with clear gospel truth for the highest good of the church and God's glory. The the kind of confrontation that I'm talking about is spirit-led. The Holy Spirit fills it and leads it. It's loving and kind, but it's also straightforward and firm. Its intent is to challenge and correct dangerous and ungodly thoughts and statements or conduct so that the person can be in step with the truth of the gospel. So this kind of confrontation comes when someone is clearly doing something inconsistent with the gospel that they profess and it is hurting them and it is hurting others. This kind of confrontation is not based on a personal opinion but applies clear gospel truth to a believer's missteps. And a confrontation is in the best interest of the believer. It's loving because it has the believer's highest good in mind. Lastly, confrontation is done for the glory of God. Peace, it's very important to understand this, peace and unity in the church are beautiful. And sometimes confrontation is needed to preserve peace and unity. Along with Barnabas and a bunch of Jewish Christians in Antioch, the Apostle Peter's conduct was hypocritical and not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter believed the gospel, but his conduct muddled the gospel and hurt his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul publicly confronted Peter, which served the church in various ways. Number one, it further confirmed Paul's apostolic authority. Paul rightly corrected an apostle. That was saying something significant. Number two, it was another way Paul preserved and publicized the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. Number three, it promoted peace and unity among Jewish and Gentile believers. And number four, it showed love for um, Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians who were poorly treated. Paul was loving others by publicly rebuking the Apostle Peter, confronting him. Godly men and women who love Christ sometimes say and do things that are not in step with the gospel, and it has a ripple effect in the church. And people are hurt. Spirit-led confrontation, then, is a gracious gift to the church. As we head into Galatians 2, 11 through 14, keep in mind that Paul was writing about this confrontation, which was a very hard moment for him and Peter, I suspect, in order to further preserve and publicize the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. That's what he's trying to do. He's been trying to do that from the beginning of the book. Paul's goal was to continue to make justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person or work of Christ alone clear. He was trying to make that clear. So don't lose sight that Paul is sharing this story as an anecdote to contend for the one and only gospel. 
I'm simply applying the text to confrontation in the church today. Now, there are good and bad motives for confrontation. Let's look at some good motives for confrontation. Number one, loving concern for a person's soul. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Antioch had a huge Jewish community and the gospel was preached there and many people received the gospel by faith and they were converted and saved. The church in Antioch was therefore comprised of Jews and Gentiles worshiping and fellowshipping together and that's a big deal to understand. That's key. Peter, a Jewish Christian and apostle, came to Antioch and worshiped, ate, and fellowshiped with Jews and Gentile Christians there. That's wonderful. It's wonderful, but when the circumcision party arrived and cast doubt on the gospel, Peter began to fear and to act contrary to the gospel and to pull away from his Gentile brothers and sisters. Not cool. Not cool at all. Therefore, Paul opposed him to his face. Why? The gospel was being vandalized. And Paul was concerned for Peter's soul. Peter's hypocrisy in the church left him condemned, not in the sense that he was unforgiven and headed to hell, but in the sense that he was wrong, guilty, a living out of sync with the gospel. Doesn't that happen with true Christians? It happens. It happens in the church. And our conduct as Christians is sometimes out of sync with the gospel. We're not living consistently with who we are, what the gospel says of us. This happens to true Christians, and we need to be lovingly confronted and realigned with the gospel. That's loving. Paul opposed Peter because he stood condemned. Now, I want you to think about that. Paul was most concerned with the purity and integrity of the gospel. That's what's driving him. However, Paul was also concerned about Peter's soul. Paul loved Peter as a brother in Christ, and he loved him by confronting him about this matter. Confrontation is a kindness when the motive is loving concern for someone's soul. Now, my parents, they love me deeply. I don't question that. And their love drove them to confront me over and over and over and over and over again. Relentless. They challenged and corrected me when my conduct was out of sync with the gospel. Their desire was to keep realigning Jonathan with the gospel because Jonathan needs that. It was one of the greatest gifts that my parents ever gave me. I'm eternally grateful. Was it comfortable? No. Did did I always understand and agree? No. Was it loving? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it preserved and publicized the gospel for me and pulled me out of condemnation and guilt time and time again and worked for my highest and my eternal good. A parent appropriately confronting their child is soul care. Soul care. We often don't give a rip about the souls of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But I assure you, Jesus does. He confronted sin, death, Satan, and hell by giving his life on the cross and suffering hell precisely because he loves his people. 
so much and actually cares about their souls. He's the only one who actually thinks and acts for the highest good, our highest good, all the time. Over and over again, our conduct is out of step with the gospel, out of step with Jesus Christ himself, and over and over again with much kindness and much firmness through his word, Jesus opposes us face to face to bring us back in step with him. As the Spirit confronts us through gospel preaching and teaching, even the shepherding ministry of our elders here, Jesus is working to align us with Himself. He lovingly confronts us in order to care for our souls. Here's another good motive for confrontation. Number two, loving concern for how hypocrisy in the church hurts people. When Peter showed up in Antioch, he was freely eating with the Gentile brothers and sisters, which was right and good. He should have been. That was great. Now, in the Old Covenant, eating with the Gentiles, that was a no-no. The Mosaic Law laid out dietary restrictions for Jews, and Gentiles didn't follow the Mosaic Law, and so a Jew eating with a Gentile was considered unclean, not to be done, but Christ came died on the cross, rose from the dead, fulfilled the Mosaic law, and eliminated the dividing line between Jews and Gentiles. The gospel allowed Jews and Gentiles to come together in faith and to eat meat, any meat for the glory of God. Bacon, please. Mm -hmm. No more Mosaic law, no more ceremonial law, only freedom in Christ for Jews and Gentiles together. This is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But the circumcision party showed up, and Peter drew back in fear. You know what? He knew better. He knew better. Acts 11, it'd be helpful for you to read that sometime, helps us understand the gravity of Peter's hypocrisy mentioned in Galatians 2. I won't read it, but here are a few summary points to this. The apostles and Christians in Judea heard that the Gentiles received the gospel and that they were getting saved. This is unbelievable. This is new. Peter arrived in Jerusalem only to be criticized by the circumcision party. What was their criticism? He went to the uncircumcised Gentiles and ate with them. So Peter explained this incredible vision to the Jews. Unclean animals descended on a sheet and God told him, kill and eat the animals. This is an incredible scene. The Lord said, quote, what God has made clean, do not call common, end quote. Peter was shocked. It was off his radar. What? What are you talking about? But, but see, he should have drawn the connection. Back in Mark 7, during his earthly ministry, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law and brought freedom for all Christians. The dietary prohibitions and ceremonial demands were abrogated because of the gospel. All foods were now edible. You can eat them. Peter told the circumcision party in Jerusalem that the Spirit told him to go with the Gentile men, making no distinction. So the distinction between Jews and Gentiles was done away with. All believers, whether Jew or Gentile, are one in Jesus Christ. How did the circumcision party respond to Peter? They fell silent. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to faith. 
or life, I'm sorry, that leads to life. It was clear then, Gentiles didn't have to become Jews and obey the Mosaic law in order to be part of God's covenant people, in order to be justified, in order to have the gospel applied to them. Peter and the other apostles and brothers in Jerusalem knew that keeping the Mosaic law was not the means of justification or entrance into the visible church. Peter had defended this very point that he compromised later. Now listen again to Paul in verses 12 and 13. For before certain men came from James, he was eating, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter knew the gospel. Peter believed the gospel. Peter preached the gospel. Peter was an apostle for Pete's sake. But a group of Jewish men from the circumcision party, likely from Jerusalem, likely admirers of James, but not actually sent by James, and men who were mixed up a bit on the gospel, as Acts 15 verse 24 suggests, they showed up and they undermined the gospel in Antioch by making circumcision a spiritual issue. And Peter felt their critical gaze and he drew back in fear. And Peter's hypocrisy influenced others. Even Barnabas. And the gospel was obscured and people got hurt. It was racist. It led people back into slavery to the law. Believers were doing this. Calvin said about it, quote, For the sake of the Jews, Peter had withdrawn himself from the Gentiles in order to drive them from the communion of the church unless they would relinquish the liberty of the gospel and submit to the yoke of the law, end of quote. Folks, it was a bad scene. And Paul confronted for the highest good of everyone. He did the hard thing. He spoke up. Philip Ryken, he has a great handle on what was going on here. He wrote this. It takes courage to stand for the gospel when the fear of people overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. Unless we are willing to stand up for God at work on Monday, we are just pretending at church on Sunday, end of quote. With the critical eyes of the circumcision party upon him, Peter feared man more than God. And so he compromised the gospel and he hurt people. He hurt the church. Saints, it's easy to do. Like Peter, we are susceptible to fear, people pleasing and compromising the gospel. We've all drawn back at one time or another. We all sometimes find ourselves condemned uh, and guilty in our hypocrisy, and we need to be confronted so that the gospel is preserved and publicized and our conduct is realigned with the gospel. True love confronts hypocrisy. It's easy to tolerate hypocrisy, It's easy to look the other way when you see hypocrisy. It's easy to be quiet about hypocrisy. But you know what? Inactivity, it comes at a cost. The gospel gets confused and people get hurt. So the gospel demands loving confrontation. Verse 14 is very important. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, 
Paul confronted Peter publicly. A public sin warrants a public confrontation. Hypocrisy is contagious and dangerous. And sometimes it must be appropriately and publicly rebuked. Now, we are often very, very selfish. We overlook hypocrisy because we don't want the trouble, honestly. We don't want to get involved. We get scared, and so we keep quiet. We, we don't love God and our neighbor enough to say something helpful that may just work to realign that someone or maybe someone else with the truth of the gospel. So I'm just going to go ahead and say for all of us, we're not good at this. We're not good at this. But, but, no one loves the gospel more and hates hypocrisy in the church more and understands the pain of hypocrisy more than Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our leader, our pastor. Jesus shed his blood on the cross to kill hypocrisy in the church and to heal, to restore, to unite, and to align his people with himself. Jesus is the great freedom fighter who is working to rid his people of hypocrisy and align them perfectly with himself. And folks, Jesus is so good to do this in our midst. He's so good. He died to kill hypocrisy. And through his sanctifying work in his people, he is bringing hypocrisy to its final death and will complete the holiness of his people. Is that not hopeful in what our king is doing for us? He's shepherding us. See, you and I, we're sometimes hypocrites. Jesus, he never is. He never was. Not a moment in his life. He is true through and through. And when we fail at this, when we fail to confront, when we fail in in just showing blatant hypocrisy of what the gospel says we are and how we act, they're not lining up. Jesus is gracious and steady and kind to work in us greater love uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. His Spirit is working in us empowering us to take small strides to confront each other when necessary and to help align each other with the truth of the gospel. Do you realize that true love is grown through confrontation? I bet if we would to poll everyone, the people who were most loving to you, most influential in your life, also spoke up. They didn't just applaud you. They were the people that got in your face when you needed it and with loving, gentle tone told you what you needed to hear and you respected it. Maybe you didn't respond great right at first. But, you know, can't we say this about our parents? I mean, in a lot of ways, aren't we glad they did just say, sure, take the house, do whatever you want, burn it down, play with matches. You want a little gas? It's in the shed. I think you know what I'm trying to say. Now, where was I? See, you get off the notes and you say dumb things. And Okay, I got it now. Do you realize that Jesus Christ shepherds your soul through loving confrontation? Through the loving confrontation of believers who love you and care about you? If only we could have more of the Spirit in receiving from other people direct words of confrontation. We're just too prideful, aren't we? 
But Jesus uses this to shepherd our souls. He uses our brothers and sisters to shepherd us because he loves us and he cares about our souls. Hypocrisy, you have to know this, is the enemy of the gospel. And hypocrisy is your enemy. It hurts people. It hurts the church. And Jesus uses confrontation inside the church to purge his church of hypocrisy and any conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. We need this kind of love. We need more people who take the church seriously and the gospel seriously. I think the greatest motive out of all of them for confrontation is number three, loving concern for the truth of the gospel and its application to all of life. Notice what led Paul to say something in this moment. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, it bothered him. It bothered him. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That that is a precise word at the right time. Paul saw hypocrisy in Peter and others. He saw conduct that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He saw that it was hurting people, and Paul spoke up. He said what needed to be said. He wasn't combative. He wasn't argumentative. He wasn't antagonistic. He was loving. Do you realize that? He was loving. Paul wanted the gospel to be applied to all of life, including all aspects of church life. He would not stand by and watch the gospel be tarnished by the hypocritical actions of Christians. And these were legit Christians. This is the Apostle Peter here. The gospel compelled Paul to act, to get involved, to speak up, to say something, to correct what he knew was absolutely false. Paul's confrontation, it assumes two big things. One, that the gospel is intelligible. It's clear. We know what the gospel is and what it isn't. There'd be some that would say something different than that. And and secondly, it assumes that there is a certain way of life that Christians should go, should live. There's a way to live as a Christian. It's clear. So, So listen carefully here. Though works of the law, they cannot save us. Only Christ can. Works of the law cannot save us. Only Christ can. After we are saved... God's good law tells us how to love and obey God. Do you understand that? In other words, the law is not our means of justification. Christ is. However, the law explains how we should love and obey God in response to our justification. Peter's hypocritical conduct was confusing the gospel because he was acting as if justification came through Mosaic law keeping. It didn't. Jews and and Gentiles were counted righteous because of the merits of Christ Jesus alone received by faith alone. Peter and the others, they were free, free in Christ, and they should have continued to eat with their Gentile brothers and sisters, and you know what? They should have spoke up and confronted the, the circumcision party. That's not what they did. Peter knew better. Barnabas knew better. The others knew better. Fear made them compromise the gospel and true unity in the church. Fear. Now, this has broad application in so many things. I'm just going to state the truth, 
You apply it. But there's tons of applications of the church today. It is easy for us to keep quiet because we don't want to stir things up. And so we wrongly assume our silence is somehow promoting unity. It doesn't. It's not. Uh, Please understand this. Peter's cowardice and silence was a unity killer. It was killing unity in the church. Not Paul's confrontation. Paul was the one working for greater unity. True unity in the gospel. Paul was the brave one led by the Holy Spirit to speak up in order to preserve and publicize the gospel and to promote true unity in the church. Saints, we are weak. We are fearful people pleasers. Do you identify with that? Boy, I am. And we are sometimes hypocrites. And sometimes we'd rather sit quietly than confront hypocrisy in the church. Why? Because it's hard and uncomfortable. We might become the target. And sometimes we'd rather not do the hard work of realigning people with the truth of the gospel. We'd rather just watch it happen and then maybe talk about it over lunch at home. That's easier. We may use unity as excuse. Hey, I don't want to get involved. Just don't want to create something. Just want to protect and have everybody unified. Well, it's, it's just an excuse because our silence and inactivity are actually promoting not true unity, but discord and disunity in the church. True unity is gospel unity, which must be protected and promoted through contending for the uncorrupted truth of the gospel. To be intimidated and fearful and quiet as a church drifts from the gospel is not fighting for freedom and unity. It's hypocrisy, which advocates disunity and pain in so many different ways, but it's easy and it's understandable because we are fearful and we are weak people prone to wander from Christ, prone to compromise, prone to pursue our own comfort rather than the highest good of others. Jesus, we can't forget this. Jesus constantly confronted people. Read his ministry. He was confronting people all the time. Precisely because he is love. And always walks in step with the truth of the gospel. He has a perfect sense about this. I know that we're faulty in how we sense it. Jesus isn't. Jesus is so spirit-filled that he never compromised God's truth, never slipped into hypocrisy, never held his tongue in fear, but always fought for true unity, and he fought with truth. Jesus gets confrontation right. You know what? Jesus sent his spirit to Paul. He sent his spirit to us to grow in us loving concern for the gospel. Oh, how precious this gospel of Jesus Christ is, never to be changed. And if we find something coming in and somehow threatening that message of Jesus Christ that brings freedom for people, we should start getting, I don't know, upset? Something? Heart pounding? What in the world is happening? This is not the gospel. This is taking us off course. This must be stopped. Out of love, we must do something. We must long to see the gospel applied to all of life. We are accepted by God because Jesus did it all. He confronted when he needed to. He was the righteous one. And because he did and because he's our perfect sacrifice, he is able to help us 
in our weakness, in our hypocrisy, to, to actually say something when it's necessary. With actually that heart of love to confront, because we know that, that it's in, gonna preserve and publicize the gospel and it's gonna show the highest good, it's gonna promote the highest good of, of, of the person. He, Jesus can help us get this right. Paul did what he did because he was filled with the Spirit of Christ. We're not apostles, but the gospel is precious to us, and we have the Spirit. And so by faith and Spirit, we must submit to Christ on this, and we must work to confront hypocrisy together and to align people with the gospel with much love, much gentleness, much grace, much forgiveness, much candor. You know, at, at the heart of loving confrontation among Christians is a passion for the gospel and a zeal for holiness in the church. Those two things. Passion for the gospel, zeal for holiness in the church. Isn't it true that we will be faithful to confront hypocrisy in each other if we are passionate about the gospel and zealous for each other's holiness? Isn't that true? I think it's true. There are godly motives for confrontation, and there are some really bad motives for confrontation. Bad motives do not come out of love for the gospel and others, but a love for self. Here are six bad motives for confrontation. Anger. You're mad that someone disagrees with you, and so you're combative, and combative words fly out of your mouth with the intent to harm other people. That's not, that's not good. A desire to win an argument. You confront, but only to display your superiority over the other guy. Pride. You speak up to make you look good and not to make Christ look good. Power. You confront because you want to control over people. You want control over people rather than wanting Christ's control over people. Selfishness. You confront to get what you want, not to advocate what God wants. Partiality. You confront because of your loyalty to a group or your conflict with another group and not because you love your neighbor, whatever group they're in. Anger, a desire to win an argument, pride, power, selfishness, partiality. These are just a couple of bad motives for confrontation. Let me add this. There are also bad ways to do good confrontation. Impatience, poor timing, impulsivity, insensitivity, acting without proper counsel and accountability, inadequate consideration of the details of the situation. You see, I believe when Paul did this, he was well calculated, well thought. He was timely in his confrontation of Peter. He was wise. This was wisdom. He got after the problem with appropriate truth and grace and timing. The gospel must inform our confrontation or it is very dangerous. And so this is why we must walk by the Spirit and walk by faith. Let me mention this as I close. Proverbs 9.8 says, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 19.25 says, Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. 
Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Loving and truthful confrontation goes a long way with believers who have wisdom. Believers who are spirit-filled receive confrontation. And they receive it, might take them a little while, but they receive it by the Spirit, the right way. Now we might ask, how did Peter respond to Paul's public rebuke? Did he storm out of there? I, I don't know exactly what happened in that moment. But I think Galatians 2 was written before the Jerusalem council. Follow me on this. So Paul rebuked Peter before the Jerusalem council. Consider what Peter said at the Jerusalem council after this happened. I believe Peter humbly received Paul's rebuke, repented of his sins, realigned his life with the gospel, and once again sought to preserve and publicize the truth of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe Paul's confrontation worked mightily in Peter's heart. Now, why do I say this? Listen to what Peter said at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, 7 through 11, and see what nuances here are. Is he adding circumcision and adding stuff? What's he emphasizing here? What might this mean, this statement mean to Gentiles? Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's a forgiven and a restored man speaking who had got it wrong but was corrected. That's a clear gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Hallelujah. This gospel is for the world. Peter wasn't advocating Gentiles being circumcised or submitting to the Mosaic law. Peter was preaching Christ. Peter was preaching justification by faith alone. Paul's spirit anointed confrontation worked for the healing and the realignment of Peter. It made Peter more like Jesus. It made Peter a better preacher of grace. And so, let us not underestimate our need of confrontation. If we could maybe just start there, we need it. As a church, you need it. As a person, I need it. As a pastor, we need it. We need it. And then, let us not underestimate the healing and the restorative power of loving gospel confrontation in the church done by people who truly love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clear word of Paul, how he was so courageous to confront Peter in a very awkward moment. But you know what? It wasn't Paul. It was your grace at work in Paul. It was the Holy Spirit leading Paul in a God-ordained moment to protect and promote and preserve and publicize the gospel and a moment that would show soul care to his brother Peter. 
This is a model that we can learn from, the application of this text. Paul's just contending for the gospel of justification by faith alone. But in here, there's an application here that that if we love the gospel and we love the church, that your spirit, Jesus himself, can help us confront when necessary in order to uphold the gospel and in order to to fight for the holiness of our brothers and sisters that we love. Help us to do this. We're so bad at this. But Jesus was so good at this. He is so good at this. Thank you, Jesus, that you confront us face-to-face in these scriptures as it is read and preached and understood rightly, God. Oh, Jesus, you confront us face-to-face so that you can correct our hearts and our behavior and, and our motives and our wishes and desires Oh, Father, please do this by your spirit in Jerusalem church. Help us to be a faithful church, to not remain silent. I pray against that we would be cruel headhunters looking for a fight, and I pray that you would help us not to be silent and sit by as our brothers and sisters do things and say things that work for their uh, dissatisfaction, work for their ingratitude, work for their uh, destruction, but that right in the middle we will find this balance of truth and grace that we will love enough to say something when you want us to say something. And to shepherd, uh, I pray for the shepherds, or the, the, the elders here, that we would be so gentle and tender to actually shepherd the sheep into greater intimacy with you, Father. That's what we're here to do. That's what this preaching ministry is geared to do. So I pray that your spirit will give it effect. Make it powerful, God, your word. Make your word powerful in the hearts of the people listening. In mine, God, start with me. And God, help us to do a better job of this. Help us to turn away from fear, turn away from hypocrisy, and live consistently with the gospel and who you made us in Christ, who we truly are. But our life veers sometimes, so bring us back, God, gently, and help us to love others, to help bring them back so we're all aligned with the gospel, with Jesus Christ himself, who is the gospel. All for your glory, Father, we pray. Amen.